We've been in uh, Hebrews chapter 13. Last week, we looked at um, some really interesting wording. The verbiage there in Hebrews 13 is amazing. Uh, I'm going to, it's not on the slides. We've only got a couple of slides we're going to go through this morning. I'm going to cover a whole two verses, mostly one. But I had to work another one in just because, no. Um, but I want to go back to Hebrews 13.10. I'll read 10 through 14 because they really set the stage for verse 15, which is what we're going to primarily look at this morning. The writer says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. We talked about that. We talked about the, the altar is the place of sacrifice, the place where the blood was spilled, and it no longer is the altar in the temple itself, but outside the gate. This altar, the altar became the cross. For those bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify or cleanse the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. We looked at that last week. I had a couple of slides uh, that he literally was crucified outside the city walls, outside the gate. Uh, we looked at a couple of different locations where uh, that could have been. There's two primary locations where it's believed that one or the other, and essentially in the big scheme of things, doesn't matter. Uh, I believe it was Gordon's Calvary. Personally, I believe it was the site north of the city, right outside of the Damascus Gate. Uh, I think that Golgotha, the place of the skull, it, there is still uh, in the mountainside, the, the, the hillside surrounding that area, right off of the tomb, uh, there is absolutely the shape of a skull <laughs> in that mountainside. And, and you can't make that up. You can't invent a mountain. And so uh, we looked at that. So he's saying here, that Jesus suffered outside of the gate. And the parallel, the allegory, or the, the illustration he's doing, remember, these first century Christians were having trouble. They were under increasing amounts of persecution. They were in great distress in many ways. And what he's saying here is, look, your future, don't go, the whole thing's about not going back to Judaism because it doesn't, function any longer. He's saying your whole deal is you need to come out fully out. And he's using this illustration of the city physically to say you need to come fully out of Judaism because Jesus went outside the gate to do the work that he did. And so he's saying that he might sanctify or cleanse the people with his own blood. He suffered outside the gate. Therefore, and we look at that whenever we see the word therefore, we say, what's it? Therefore, looking back on what's just been said, therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. In other words, life might not get easier by you going fully out of Judaism. Chances are it's going to get tougher, and it did. A great persecution would break out within a few years of when this letter was written, and thousands of Jews would have been slaughtered. Uh, we still see the remnants of, of that. When we look at some of the, the archaeological sites, we look at the city of Jerusalem itself was decimated. It was wiped out by the Romans. Uh, you look at 
a place like Masada where there was a big hold out there for a long time and the Romans literally built, a, I mean, there was a few people up there, relatively speaking, and they built this ramp out of dirt to get up to the top of that mountain because Caesar was not going to be embarrassed by these people that were holding out. And he invested what the equivalent would have been in our day of like billions of dollars in, in doing this whole deal. And you can still go up there and see the, the huge stone balls from the catapults that the Romans used as they lobbed these things onto the mount, onto the top of Masada. So this persecution was growing. It was a real deal. And these people were hurting. They were suffering. And the writer is saying, I know, it's hard. Come out, fully out. Come to the cross. Come to Christ. Put your faith, put the weight of your life down on him because there's nothing else. There's nothing else. And that's true for us. There's nothing else. There's a lot of isms out there, but there's only one. Jesus. The the Jesus of the Bible. Yeah, we could put his name on the door and then have all kinds of weird stuff that we put forth. Well, look at that when we talk about vain worship as we go this morning. But he's saying, bear his reproach. In other words, the load that he had, bear that because that's the load that you have. Remember Jesus said, he said, you know, men are going to revile you. They're going to hate you. They're going to cast all kinds of insults at you on account of me. If they hate you, it's because they hate me. We're looking at this thing in, in Great Britain where people hate him. And so they're coming against his people. And guess what? That's just part of it. We bear his reproach. Part of the Christian life is that he does give us, and he'll give us the power to stand up for him. Are we willing to stand? Are we willing to be bold? I pray sometimes for the gift of boldness because yeah, there's that part in me, folks, that I just, I want people to like me. I mean, there's a man pleaser in here, part of that old man that, that, uh, you know, and you can get that backwards. You, You don't serve God by pleasing man. You please God. Uh, it, yeah, I got that backwards. You, you serve God. You please God by serving man. You don't serve God by pleasing man. You can put it backward. You can get to the point where you're just trying to go along with the crowd. And yet what he's doing is saying, I want you to live lives that are set apart. He's called us to live set apart. That is clear. That's what being sanctified means. It means being set apart. That's the positional sanctification that we have. Yeah, there's a practical sanctification where he is setting us apart day by day, working in our lives, conforming us to the image of Christ. And yet truly being set apart is what, and that's what he's saying here, bear his reproach. For here we have no continuing city. In other words, it's not about the physical Jerusalem anymore. Well, look at that. He says, but we seek the one to come. So he's saying, come out of Judaism. The sacrifice for sin is out here. Not, it's not any longer is it in there. So in, in verse 15, he says, therefore, again, he says, therefore, Hebrews 13, 15, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. 
These people had lived entire lives that were built around sacrifice. And, and yeah, sure, the Day of Atonement, which is what he's referring to here loosely when he talks about the blood of bulls and goats and all of that, uh, and the sacrifices that we looked at last week in more depth than we are this morning. But their lives were steeped in the fact that you do something and God does something. And now what they're doing is they're saying they had this whole deal with Judaism. We've talked about it was a delight to the senses. It was a big deal on feast days uh, when they had the big processions and the priests would be in all their regalia. They'd be marching up. They'd have these big pots of water and silver and gold and, and they'd go up and there'd be thousands of animals slaughtered on the altar and the, the priests would lead worship and they would do this responsive worship and the guys would blow their horns and, and the, the crowd would would just shout. And I mean, it was a big, big production. And he's saying, come out of that. Those sacrifices don't count anymore. But there is something you can do. And it's no longer are you doing that to get a covering for sin because your sin has been eliminated if you've come to Christ. Now the response of your heart, the response of your life, is the sacrifice of praise. Come outside, come to the cross. That's the sacrifice that we do now. Then the new covenant, what we do, the reason why we come together here and worship corporately, and, and this right now, as we look into his word and we study his word, it's an act of worship. As we go out there and we live lives that are set apart, guess what? It's an act of worship. Worship and praise is central to our lives as believers. It's central to who we are, to our identity as Christians. Because we know that there is something, someone far greater than we are. And our lives are controlled, compelled by the working of the Holy Spirit within, who is connecting us directly to God. That we are the temple. It's not a temple in Jerusalem that we have become the temple of God. Fabulous. I don't, you know, I said many times, I wouldn't have done it that way. But I know that doesn't even count. I mean, I love the way that God has set this up. He says, there's a temple, there's a temple, there's a temple, there's a temple. There's one that thinks they're a temple and they're not. And, and, and so on. I mean, because he, he goes to the heart. So as we look at praise and worship, I want to spend some time today. We're not going to cover a lot of ground in Hebrews, but I want to look at praise and worship. I want to look at the who, what, when, where, and why of worship. It's important that we understand as we come together, as we lift up our voices and sing that that, that is an act of worship that's far greater. So the first is a who. Who is a worshiper? Uh, equally important, whom do we worship? Because the object of our worship is all important. The truth is, everybody is a worshiper. Believer, unbeliever, everybody worships something or someone. Folks, we can't afford to get this wrong. 
We can't afford to be worshiping, having the wrong object of our worship, even if we name it Jesus. When we look at the golden calf that the children of Israel made there, uh, while Moses was up on the mountain and they took all of their gold off and they threw it in the fire and they molded this golden calf, they called it Yahweh. They called it the name, the covenant name of God. So was their worship as they danced around this thing? Did it count? Absolutely not. So we can't afford to get it wrong when it comes to the object of our worship because people worship all kinds of things. Have you ever been to or seen a rock concert and it's like you might have this guy up there, you know, and he's, you know, breaking his guitar or whatever he's doing and the girls are right up next to the stage and they're like reaching out to him and they're screaming and crying and all this craziness. I used to see that when I was a kid. It's like, wow, they're worshiping this guy. Horrible. I mean, and it's like, yeah, they idolize, you know, the whole idolized thing. You have an idol and, and yeah, they worship different idols in biblical days and biblical times, but that's essentially what that person is. I mean, maybe he's an American idol, but he's still an idol. <laughs> what about workaholics? I spent a period of time, especially when I had two businesses that the Lord blessed me with and they prospered. And I, I, there was, there was a time where I just started to really get into it. It was like, man, I'm doing great. This is good. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, it, it, and it's deceitful because I started getting more of my, uh, priorities invested in that than in God. It became an idol in some ways. And I freely admit it. God dealt with me on it. And um, I love where I'm at, what I'm doing now. It's Super Bowl Sunday. I remember I was doing prison ministry once. And, and yeah, I, I was watching the television last night on the news, and, and they were showing all of these people, these mobs of people that are, have like put out thousands of, this thing's driving me crazy, um, put out thousands of dollars to fly to Florida. They're doing all that. And I, I'm not making a big deal. I'm not going to sit there and kick these people around. And yet it's like, wow, I remembered when I was doing jail ministry, I, I was ministering this guy one time. And you typically, as the jailhouse preacher, you don't say, so what are you in for? That's just not cool. You don't do that. It's just not not part of it. But this guy kind of volunteered it. He said, uh, I don't remember. He said something that caused me to say, really? So that's what's going on with you? And he said, yeah, I robbed a bunch of banks. I said, really? He said, yeah, man, I'm a Raiders fan. Said, what? Raiders fan, bank robber. Okay, so explain that to me, please. I'm not getting it. He said, well, what I would do was I went to all of the away games. I went to all the home games down in Oakland. That wasn't a big deal. But when they're away, those are expensive, so I'd rob a bank. (laughs) And I thought, oh, my gosh. (laughs) I didn't say that. I I kept a relative poker face. "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, But but I mean, I, I was like, This guy has an idol. I mean, he is worshiping the Oakland Raiders to the point where he's sticking people up with a gun every time he wants to go to another game. And he did that like 10 times. He was going to be there for a long time. (laughs) The point is, that was that had become his idol. It was the object of his worship. He was investing his life in that. I mean, and I know that's an extreme case. And that really happened. I remember kind of going, oh, really? Hmm. 
I didn't want to say that's nice because it wasn't, but it was just a really odd conversation. So anyway, uh, more subtly, uh, there's a great story in the Bible. It talks about the Samaritan woman. Jesus goes up. He's going to go to Galilee. I love this story. I've got a lot of ground to cover, but I've I got to tell the story anyway. The religious leaders in Jesus' day were, they were just real creeps. And they, yeah, the, yeah, the Greek word is creepios. Yeah, or it's, no, it's not. But, but they were just, they were creepy. And, and they were so hung on acts of obedience that they would not go to Galilee by taking the direct route. Now, Jerusalem's kind of on the top. It's on the ridge coming up from the coast. And then, you know, then there's desert and wilderness and all that. I'm not going to do a geography lesson, but so the, the, the most direct route was to go along the ridge from Jerusalem up to Galilee. It was easy. And you kind of come out through, the, it's called the Valley of the Dubs and there's Mount Arbel and it's all that stuff. At any rate, they wouldn't do that because they thought that it, there was a, the region, the center region, Samaria in that country had been transplanted back when the Assyrians had done their thing 700 years before and all that. But it had, they had gotten this weird group in there. They were sort of half-breed Jews, and they had half-breed, half-baked Judaism, and, and they had a real weird religion. It was sort of like Judaism, but not. And, and, and so the religious leaders would say, well, if there was so much as a speck of dust touched their sandals from a Samaria, or from the area of Samaria, that they were unclean. They were defiled. So let alone walk in there. And so they would walk all the way down to the Jordan River, which is a long ways, go cross the river, hike up, and then go back in to go to Galilee. So they did this whole deal. And Jesus says, you know, I think I need to go to Galilee. And he, he says, let's go. He starts going the ridge route. He's taking the direct route. He's going to go through Samaria. And remember his disciples, they were a bunch of really dedicated Jewish boys. They, So he goes up. And he goes to this place in Samaria. It's right near Shechem, where Abraham was and all of that. Uh, Mount Gerizim on the left and Mount Ebal in front of you is a big Y in the road there. And there's this well, this Jacob's well. He goes to a place called Sychar and he meets this lady from Samaria. Jews normally don't have anything. You want to talk about no, you just don't have anything to do with somebody from Samaria. That's just not part of it. And you better not even have contact, let alone he's walking through there. So that's the scene. He comes upon this woman and he says, drink the water that I give you and out of your innermost being will flow forth, will gush forth rivers of living water. And he starts having this dialogue with her. Well, and breaking into the middle of that in John chapter four, verse 19, it says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where we ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, and this is telling, talking about worship here. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither, neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, that's where the Samaritans worship, uh, nor in Jerusalem worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit 
And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So he basically tells her that she has the wrong idea about worship. And it's not about where. And this is where Jesus begins to introduce this thing that it's not about Jerusalem. It's not about a geographical place. And it's not about Mount Gerizim. And he says, you worship what you don't know. In other words, your worship is vain. It doesn't count. And, and, and she's not a true worshiper yet. By the end of this day, she would be. But he, he says some very telling things. He talks about two things. That as we look at what worship is, we see that he says you must worship in spirit and you must worship in truth. Both have to be in place for your worship to be genuine, authentic worship towards God, the God of the Bible, the work of Christ. So as we look at what worship is, I want to give you a couple of definitions. It's simply, it's counting God worthy. I mean, worthship is where we get that word, and, and we're essentially ascribing great worth to the God that we love and that we serve. And that's worship in the broadest definition. I came across a couple of definitions here that this is one, this is a guy by the name of William Temple. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury back in the 40s in Britain. And this is a beautiful statement. He says, worship is the submission of all our nature to God, is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this is gathered up in adoration. Isn't that good? It's all that I am, Lord, is yours. All that I am, my heart, mind, soul, strength is yours. And, and, and I love you. And, and it's, yes, is there an emotional component? Of course there is. But true worship, it's not born of our emotions primarily. It's born of our hearts, the inner person, the inner life. And as we ascribe worth to God, we're seeing ourselves in the great scheme of things, who we are and who he is. Uh, we willing to willingly devote not only times and places to prayer, but everywhere to be in the spirit of devotion with hearts always set toward heaven, looking up to God in all our actions and doing everything as his servants, living in the world as in a holy temple of God, you and I, and always worshiping him, though not only with our lips, yet with the thankfulness of our hearts, the holiness of our actions, and the charitable use of all his gifts. That's worship. We worship folks with our lives. Yes, we lift up our voices to him. And that specifically is what the writer in Hebrews is talking about. The fruit of our lips, the sacrifice of praise. That's true. And yet worship in its truest sense goes far beyond just singing. Interesting, our worship must engage our spirits in the pursuit of truth. That's spirit and truth. Uh, in order for that to happen, you've got to be born again of the spirit. To be born of the spirit, you must choose Christ. This, there's a linkage here. Like I said, this is something that the world doesn't get. 
The world worships all kinds of crazy things. And yet the people of God, for the people of God, Jesus Christ, the Son, God, the Father, are the objects of our worship. We worship Him in spirit and truth. The only God is about bringing glory to Himself. Have you ever thought about it this way? As the temple of God, as the person who is indwelt by the Spirit of God, that when I bring worship to Him, it's prompted by the Spirit within me. And in that sense, He is bringing glory to Himself. This is not about me. It's about Him. Uh, there's, and I, I don't want to go there. There's, there's a lot of spiritual hype out there that sort of glorifies man. And I think that's hard. It's hard to digest. It's hard to watch. It's hard to watch people being deceived. The kind of people that the Father is seeking are the ones who will worship Him in this way. So when we talk about what is worship, there's a couple of things. It's spiritual, worshiping in spirit. I'm going to give you some scriptures. I'm going to move through these scriptures. If you're a note taker, you're going to get worn out because I have a lot. So uh, just watch the video or catch the podcast or whatever. But uh, I'm just going to move through these because I want to bring a biblically balanced uh, teaching about worship. I'm going to use the scripture to teach from. I mean, and I don't normally use this many scriptures because uh, sometimes it ties us up in knots. We get, you know, you're processing on this and I've moved on. But uh, the only way to really give a rounded idea of what worship is, is to go to God's word. I can think of no better source. In John 3, 5, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one's born of the water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That's why worship is distinctly for Christians. True worship. Vain worship, not so much. We'll talk about that in a sec. Uh, in Psalm 51, David, King David, after Nathan the prophet had gone to him and said, you are that man, when he had had Uriah the Hittite killed and taken Bathsheba to be his own and all of that. I mean, he murdered him. And, and, and when David, the first thing that he did, he broke and he repented and he, and he poured his heart out to God. And, and, and he says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. And he had one. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. I want to talk about vain worship for a minute because it's not worshiping in the spirit. And people often think that it is, but I, I want to be very clear. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, Jesus says this, he says, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, listen to this, teaching his doctrine the commandments of men. So when he's talking about vain worship, Jesus connects what you know, what you are being taught, what you understand about God to worshiping him, because you will worship that which you know. You will worship that which is the object of your affections. And if you're teaching garbage doctrine, you're leading people to vain worship. That's what he's saying. If you want to believe the wrong thing about God and then worship him, your worship is not going to count. So is it important that we understand that that we are worshiping God as he is, the God of the Bible, the God who created all that is the God who sent his son to die for us to go to that cross that we could have life. Oh, it's critical. It's critically important. 
You gotta know that He wants our worship. But it has to be worship in the Spirit and it has to be worship in truth. Isaiah chapter 1, uh, I remember doing this in the jail. I, I, I called this message machine gun fire and grace <laughs> because Isaiah puts the hammer down with the people in his day, but it applies. He says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord. Israel was a mess at that time. Uh, they were into all kinds of idol worship. They And they were bringing it into the temple. They were bringing it into uh, their worship. And God had had it. And he basically indicts them with a whole bunch of things that he had ordained. He said, you know, you should have sacrifices. You should gather. You should do this. You should do that. And And yet... Their hearts were so far from him. It's just what Jesus was talking about and, and, and reaching back 700 years before Christ. Now he says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and the rams and the fat of fed cattle. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. That was the means by which people could have their sin atoned. And he says, I, I'm just not there. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They're trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Because they were assembling to worship and their hearts were not connected. As, as I was talking about with communion this morning, they had allowed that to become a ritual, routine. And then as they, their hearts wandered and they began to serve other gods, lowercase g gods, it became ritualistic and sort of an end to itself instead of worshiping him. And God hated it. And he still does. And Hosea, connected to that, Hosea 6.6 6, He says, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Interesting. Worship needs to be genuinely truthful. Worshiping in truth is essential. If we're supposed to worship in truth, we better be paying attention to what is truth and what is not. Folks, don't take my word for things. Sincerely, seriously, I'm a guy. I'm, I'm a fallible man. Be as the Bereans there in Acts chapter 17 where, where they studied the scriptures. They searched out the things that the apostle Paul was telling them to see if they were so. And, and, and if you're in another church somewhere, please let that be. It's a healthy practice. It's a healthy thing to do, to check, to see if that's what's being said. Because as I mentioned, and there has been since the first century, since the very first early church, there has been false doctrine that gets introduced. There are great portions of the New Testament that are devoted to combating false doctrine. Why? Because number one, you can miss heaven. And number two, your worship won't count if you're worshiping the wrong God. And you can name him like they did the cap. You can name him Jesus. You can name whatever. 
But it's got to line up with this. It has to be intelligent. Worship of God is not only spiritual. It has to be intelligent. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus said, and you must love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. It's part of it. I, I you know, I, I call it the warm fuzzies when I'm worshiping the Lord and I'm just lost and, and all of that. And I love that. I love the, the, the intimacy of, of community work, you know, corporate worship. And, and, and yet, I don't want to live for that uh, because uh, worship is not about me. It's about him. And it's real important to keep that in mind. Uh, in Psalm 119, he says, help me understand the meaning of your commandments and I'll meditate on your wonderful deeds. Uh, the psalmist says, your word is a, a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Those are attitudes of a worshipful heart. And David knew how to worship. It's about having God's word on your heart all the time. There's a passage in Deuteronomy, it's, it's longish, so in Deuteronomy 6, where, where God tells them through Moses, he says, to, to meditate on these things. Give them to your children when you walk along the way. Have these on your lips when you lay down at night, when you rise up in the morning. Fill your mind. Uh, in Psalm 1, he says, I meditate on your law day and night. Why? Because it's an attitude of worship. Yeah, I want to know him. And yet I want to worship the one that I know. As we do that, that's what it means to count God worthy. Worthy of your attention. Worthy of your concentration. Worthy of your focus. Certainly worthy of your heart. That's worship. The third thing I want to look at here is why do we worship? Three things quickly. <clears throat> First and foremost, why do we worship? <laughs> My son loves to get at me. Um, there are a few things that I disagreed with my mentor on. And one of them, my son knows, and we were talking last week about worship because we're going through, we're doing some new things with our worship team and, and the Lord's doing some just great things that we're going through. And, and I was sharing with him and he said, well, you know, dad, we worship because it prepares our hearts to get into the word. And I just grated my teeth. I was like, you know what? And, and I'll share with you guys. It, it gets to me because we don't worship to prepare our hearts to get into the word. Yes. Is my heart more prepared to get into the word? Absolutely. But that's not why I worship. I worship because he's worthy. And, 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 and my son, he says that and he, and then he just gets quiet. And it's like he could hear me kind of burbling on the other end of the line, you know, we're on the phone. And I, yeah, thanks, son. All right. And he's, I know, dad, uh, you know, but, but why do we worship? Because he is worthy. He alone is worthy. There should, and if there's any other object of worship in your life, perhaps the Holy Spirit's putting his hand on something this morning. Get rid of it. Put it in its proper place. Because we can begin to worship good things, not just false doctrine, but good things. And yet they can begin to compete for the affections of my heart. So 
So allow God to work in you to do that divine surgery. In First Chronicles 16, uh, we read, For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised, and he is also to be feared above all lowercase g gods. The second thing is God's word instructs us to worship. Uh, way too many references for me to go into here. Uh, I'll just come back to the, the verse that we're in this morning, Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. First Chronicles 16, give to the Lord the glory, do his name, bring an offering and come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I think about that and I think, you know, if you are in a place, and again, I have no one in particular in mind at all, uh, but if you're, if you're in sin this morning, if you're in an area that you know you shouldn't be in, a secret sin or an area where you know that it's not something that God would have you be engaged in. Your worship is vain. And you need to get right with him. Because there are conditions to worship that that we bring to him. He wants your whole heart. It is in the beauty of holiness. The third thing is the only appropriate response. Why do we worship him? Because it's the only appropriate response. What else do you do? What can we give to him? The one, I mean, he spoke the universe into existence, folks. And, and so what can I give him? This isn't an exchange here. It's not, you do that and I'll do this. He said, you know what? I'm going to send my son to die for you, to literally lay down his life. And, and the, the way that you gain entry into my kingdom is to believe that, to simply trust that that's so, and let your life show that, and, and, and you're in. It's free. No cost. No, the, the, the price is paid. If that doesn't make your heart desire to worship, I don't know what will. Because it's the only appropriate response. I give him the sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice is done. As we look in the Bible as to the the response of people that come into God's presence, we see Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Peter, and John, and others. The only appropriate response is they were down. And they were in a posture of worship before a holy God. No, uh, oh, I could rabbit trail on that, but I want to pick it up here. We're going to run out of time. Uh, the Apostle John, he was tempted to worship an angel at one point. And, and again, angelology, and I understand when people are hurting, sometimes when somebody's passed away, they go, well, there are angels looking down on us now. And all. it's like, you know what? There's nothing in the Bible that talks about that. And I think they have far better things to do than to look at our weird lives down here when they're in heaven. But that's just my opinion. Um, but so John, you know, he's there and, and, and he is just overwhelmed with this apocalyptic vision that this whole panorama that, that, that the Lord is laying out before him through this angel. And it says in Revelation 19, it says, I fell at his feet to worship him. <laughs> and the angel kind of freaked out. Um, he says, but he said to me, see that you do not do that. <clears throat> Get up, John. <laughs> I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. 
For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Uh, Psalm 150, verse 6 says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Remember when Jesus was riding into town in the triumphal entry and the people were laying down the palm fronds and their garments and this, I just pictured dust coming out of the big crowd coming with them, big crowd coming out of the city and they kind of get together and the religious leaders are going, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he's like, and, and if he could talk in 21st century vernacular, he probably would have looked at him and said, yeah, right. But it's not what it says, but he says, you know what? If I become silent, what's going to happen? The rocks are going to start to worship. They were worshiping him. Here's something that I found from Charles Spurgeon. This is uh, uh, just kind of funny. And in my notes, I wrote LOL. <laughs> um, talking about corporate worship. Some go to church to take a walk. Some go there to laugh and talk. Some go there to meet a friend. Some go there their time to spend. Some go there to meet a lover. Some go there to a fault to cover. Some go there for speculation. Some go there for observation. Some go there to doze and nod. I see you. (laughs) The wise go there to worship God. Isn't that good? Now to the when. When do we worship God? Of course, it's easy to worship God when I'm in a season of blessing. Uh, praise the Lord. I mean, you know, it's like my uncle Al Amici, he was in the Catholic archdiocese. He'd say, how's your business? And I'd say, it's good. And then God is with you. It's like, no, he's with me all the time. You know, and then it's like, I got tired of trying to correct him. I just let him to whatever. But the point is, in in a season of blessing, it's easy for us to worship God, isn't it? it when, when things are going well, I mean, God blessed me with a new job or he's blessed me with healing from this disease and all of that. And that causes our hearts absolutely to want to worship. And that's valid and it's good. But what about things when things are not going well? I'll tell you what, folks. There is a depth to our worship when we are in a season of trial that is unparalleled in my in my experience. I was thinking about Job here. Uh, when he was told, they came to him and they said, Job, all of your children, they were in a house. And this big wind came up and the house collapsed. All of your kids, Job, are dead. Here's his response in Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says, and Job arose, arose tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There are times that we go through folks where there we go through seasons where perhaps we have great pain. You may be in that place this morning. I was reminded of a season in my life where I went through great pain and it was relentless. It was very, very difficult. I, I, I characterize it as, as like walking through two feet of mud every day for a while. And there was a song that was on the radio or in, in, that I, I listened to it over and over again. I don't normally read song lyrics, but these are godly lyrics. 
from a group called Casting Crowns, a song that was called Praise You in the Storm. And this is what it says, As I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down and wiped our tears away and stepped in and saved the day. But once again, I say amen, and it's still raining. As the thunder rolls, I barely hear you whisper through the rain, I'm with you. And as your mercy falls, I raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. And I'll praise you in this storm and I will lift my hands that you are who you are no matter where I am. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand because you've never left my side. And although my heart is torn, I'll praise you in the storm. Folks, something that is difficult for me. I I remember after my daughter went to heaven, I got into doing bereavement work, coming alongside people, and and because my heart was just there, it was tender towards people who had lost a loved one, a significant loss in their life. And and, and I would meet in, in these groups, I would meet people who were angry with God. And I would think the greatest source of comfort that you could have as you go through this storm, this this most difficult perhaps time that you've had in your entire life, if you could just see his love, if you could just see the comfort that he wants to bring, if you could just experience his touch, that you could praise him in the storm in that sense. Worshiping God through the storms is part of what sustains us, folks. And we get ripped off if we shake our fist at him and walk away. I could not have gone through some of the things that I've gone through were it not for my relationship with him and the fact that he beckoned me to worship him in the midst of it. Our worship takes on a dimension that it, that it takes on at no other time. The Psalms, interesting. The Psalms are a pattern. I'm going to run a little behind. I, I, I pray you will indulge me here. I've got a bit more to cover and, uh, it's getting towards quitting time and, and yet I, I'd like to finish this up. The Psalms, there's a pattern in the Psalms. I don't know if you ever noticed, but uh, about 42 of the Psalms, they're called Psalms of Lament. And, and it's interesting, 30 of them are individual Psalms of Lament and, and the other 12 are, are communal. They're, they're, like to a group or from a group. Um, but there's a pattern there, and I think it's interesting. Uh, the lament psalms follow this pattern. And I'll read it, and then I'll come back, and I'll go through it again. Invocation, complaint, request, expression of confidence, and a vow to praise. In other words, like I think about Psalm 61, hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. My heart is overwhelmed, right? And, and, and then he's, and, and so that's the invocation. He's saying, God, hear me. God, rescue me. My bed is soaked with tears. That's the complaint. My enemies are compassed about me. They're all around me. That's the complaint. The request, deliver me, O God. Save me from my distress. You see that. If you spent time in the Psalms, you see this pattern. And and, and then the expression of confidence. My heart will endure this. 
I know whom I have believed. I know you're going to pull it off, Lord. You know, and there's that confidence that comes out. And then he ends the psalm. And, and, and it's a it's a wonderful pattern just to see that. And I invite you to look for that when you're reading the psalms. And, and it ends with, and I will praise you. I will, I will worship you in the midst of this. I will give praise to your holy name. You are the Lord and there is no other and all of that. But you see that. Again, beautiful pattern. It's a pattern of praise in the midst of difficulty. Great encouragement for you and I when we're going through things. The where. Three things. It wasn't Mount Gerizim. It wasn't going to be Jerusalem. Jesus said the time's coming and now is. And true worshipers won't worship at a place. It's not Calvary Chapel, Newburgh. Even though I love to worship here. We worship corporately. Yes, it's true. The book of Acts, it says that they were continuing in one accord and and the the house churches were being birthed, and, and that part of what they did was to praise God uh, together. And they, they came together. It was part of corporate worship. The birth of the church included corporate worship. And that's why we do this. Individually, Matthew chapter 6 says, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. And when you shut the door, pray to your Father who's in the secret place. Prayer is an act of worship, folks. I'm ascribing worth to him when I take time to have communion with him in prayer. Anywhere and everywhere we worship with our lives. Romans 12.1, a beautiful passage. I'm going to give you this from the New American Standard Version. I normally teach from the the New King James. Um... And I've looked at it in the original language, and the wording is there. I don't know how the word worship got dropped out of the New King James, but it did. It says your spiritual service. But no, it's your spiritual service of worship. Romans 12 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We worship with our lives. Yes, we worship with, with with the fruit of our lips, as it says in, in Hebrews here. But we worship God with our lives. And if your life is not a life that is living, set apart to him, you need to fix that. That's part of the, the what the earmark of a, a believer, of somebody that is walking with the Lord, is, is somebody that is living, Set apart for him. I serve at the pleasure of my master. I think about being an ambassador. An ambassador in the United States to the, for the United States in another country. They don't serve at their own, uh, agenda. They don't have their agenda. And we're called to be ambassadors. An ambassador says, I serve at the pleasure of the president. Or they don't, and they end up being impeached. No, 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 not going to go there. But the point is, is that, you know, it's, we're ambassadors. We're, we are people that represent our king and his kingdom. And we do that as an act of worship. We worship with our lives. Uh, that's a, that Presenting our bodies a living and holy sacrifice uh, is our spiritual service of worship. 
The last thing, how do we worship? Coming full circle, we worship God by proclaiming his worth. That's what we do. We worship God by acknowledging that he alone is worthy of our praise. Lost my place here. We worship him in spirit and in truth, both spiritually and intellectually. He connects, Jesus connects those. He says it's vain worship if you're worshiping as the product of being indoctrinated with the doctrines of men. We worship him through all of life's circumstances. Folks, if you're not uh, in a storm, I said before, you're either coming out of one or you're about to go into one because we have trials. We go through things in this life. And he's the one that wants our hearts. We express that, yes, in the fruit of our lips, but we we express that in valuing him above all else. That's what worth-ship is about. So with the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, we, we praise him with thanksgiving. Uh, Hebrews 13, again, the verse 15, therefore by him let us continually. He's talking about a repetitious thing. He's talking about a way of life. He's not talking about something we just do on Sunday morning. He says continually, let's offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Why? Because for these guys in the first century, they didn't have to be in the city going through the repetitious over and over and over again, sacrificing animals, the blood being spilled, put your hands on the animal, pray your sin into that animal, cut its throat, let the blood come out, put it up on the altar or take it into the holy, the whole deal. He says, no, there's one sacrifice once for all. His name is Jesus. You don't have to do that. And for these people, this would be a tremendous statement. The second thing is in practicing our faith and in service to him. Verse 16, I told you we'd get to the second verse. He says, but not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Again, that's part of worshiping with our life. Doing good, sharing. And for these people, that was really important. For people who had had their property seized, plundered people that had experienced great loss, but it's no different for us in our culture. You can easily transfer that. Our lives are marked with being lives that are committed to generosity towards others, that are committed to charity towards others. And that's part of our identity as Christians. Why do we do that? It's an act of worship. I'm giving worth to my king. And when Jesus said in Matthew 25, you know, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was sick and you visited. I was in jail and all of that. And the guys kind of went, huh? What is scratching their heads? When did we do that? He said, well, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. You're worshiping me. That's his point. We worship with intimacy and transparency. Jesus referred to his father as Abba, Daddy, Papa. It's an intimate term. 
And when we come into his presence, yeah, there are times where I'm overwhelmed by his majesty. And there are times where I just want to climb up into dad's lap and pour out my heart. You know, the different, and he is all of that to us. Finally, we worship practically. We're going to close with this. We worship in choosing to live set apart. We worship when we have a life that is devoted to prayer. We worship when we're sitting in silent wonder. Do you ever do that? There are times in my office I'll be preparing or I'll just be studying or whatever, and and I just kind of slink out of my chair, onto my knees in front of my desk, and and I'm just, Lord, you're just so good. This is just so fabulous. This is so unbelievably wonderful that I praise you. It's just that silent wonder, that silent adoration. Of course, we worship him in song, the fruit of our lips. We worship him. It's an act of worship to share the good news of Christ with others. The love of God compels me. We worship God in our giving. And you know me, I am not going to ever make it about the money in this church. I don't, I don't want anybody to leave here ever saying, oh, they just, all they're doing is begging for me. I've heard all of that before. But when you give, you're not giving to the church. Yeah, yeah, we give an opportunity for you to give to the church. And of course we survive <laughs> on that. But the point is, it's giving to the Lord. And as we give, it's an act of worship. I'm saying, Lord, you are so valuable to me. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. And it's not just giving money. It's giving of our time, our treasures, and our talents. When we give through service, it's an act of worship. So we worship in our giving. We worship. It's an act of worship to share common union with other believers. Communion. Yeah, it's not just this. It's the same word for fellowship. Koinonia. True fellowship, it's different than friendship. Yeah, I have communion with my friends, but when I have a common union in Christ, it's because of the value that I put on that relationship, which is worship. That's how I express it. And when I have fellowship with others, Christ-centered fellowship, it's an act of worship. All in all, folks, it's you, you, something that has been absent from this study is the style that we use to worship. You know, there are churches that use flags and have people painting and dancing, and doing all kinds of stuff. And it's, it's not us. It's not our personality. And I'm not here to put them down or to, to lift them up. I'm just saying that that's a stylistic thing. Stylistically, we give great value to music in our worship. And we give great value to the teaching of the Word of God. That's, that's just who, that's our identity. But it's not about the style. It's not about the method. It's about the heart. Let's pray. Father, just sort of this concentrated look at worship and what it is, what it means to worship you, to come into your presence and to be filled with awe and wonder.